be finding in your Bibles Luke chapter 23. While you're finding that, I'll tell you just a quick story about the teacher of an adult Sunday school class. He asked his class members, he said, well, I'm just curious, before we get started on the lesson, he said, just share, somebody share, what, what does Easter mean to you in your household? One man said, it means we're having egg salad sandwiches for the next two weeks. <laughs> That's what it means. Well, I'll tell you what, Easter is about a great story. And it's a true story. And so all you kids, I know you're here, and you, we're not having children's church, so all your workers can be in here too. But I want you to listen real closely because it's about a great story. It's really not about decorating eggs or anything. We just kind of do that for fun around this time of year. It's really not about dressing up. Trust me, I'd rather be without a tie this morning. My daughter said, no, you're wearing a tie. So I'm in a tie. It's, it's really not even about dressing up. It's about a wonderful story. And it's about the story of Jesus in verse 44, Luke begins, Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the earth until the ninth hour. That is, it was about noon until three o'clock in the afternoon. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a voice, he said with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to, to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and, and returned. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision and their deed, he was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate, and he asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and he laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock, where no one had ever lain before. That day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew near. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and in the th on the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. I'm just going to catch you up just a little bit. We're talking in a series, we'll conclude it today, called The Three Gardens of God. The first garden that we talked about was the Garden of Gethsemane. After Jesus had a meal with his disciples in the upper room, they went down across the Kidron Brook, across the Kidron Valley, up a little hill called the Mount of Olives, where they found um, a garden there called Gethsemane. And in Gethsemane, there is an orchard there. It's an olive orchard is what it is. And there was in that orchard a press, an oil press, where they would 
dump all the olives when they harvested them and that, that press would press out all the oil. And, and olive oil was such a great commodity. It was in high demand. And so they would press that oil out with that press. And the word Gethsemane means oil press. That's what the very word means. And we find that that night after they went there, or it was nighttime already, Jesus began to pray. And his disciples just couldn't tarry with him. They, they grew tired and sleepy and weary, but he continued to pray. And then they observed him off from the side, and he, they said he began to sweat drops like blood. Now they were drops of blood. That's why they thought it was blood. He was being pressed by the sins of the world, even right there in the garden. Now the Bible tells us that He bore our sins when He died upon the tree. But listen, He began to bear the weight and load of our sin even in the garden before He was ever arrested. The Bible says He was in agony. He wanted to die. So we said the garden of Gethsemane is the garden of agony where the Lord Jesus agonized under the load of our sin. But then we talked last week about another garden that's mentioned in the Bible. As Jesus hung on the cross, the Bible says there was a thief on one side and another thief on the other. And one of them mocked him, but the other one said, This man's done nothing wrong. And he recognized who Jesus was. He recognized that Jesus was his only hope for eternal life. And he turned to Jesus and he said, Would you remember me when you enter your kingdom? Jesus said, This day you shall be with me in paradise. The word paradise is a word that Jesus used that means heaven. He referred to heaven. It means, literally, beautiful garden. And don't you know the things that we read about in the scriptures talking about heaven? It's going to be a beautiful place. You know, there are some places that are really, truly beautiful. I grew up in West Texas, and some will say it has a beauty all of its own. You know what that means? It's not pretty. That's what that means. If it has a beauty all its own, that means it's standing alone. That's just the truth. You come out to East Texas, there's some beauty. You go to Tennessee, there's some beauty. You go to Maine, there's some beauty. You go back to West Texas, and you just want to move. (laughs) So, you know, uh, heaven is beautiful. This is not it. This earth, the Bible says there'll be a new heaven, there'll be a new earth. This earth will be destroyed by fire. And there will be a new heaven, a new earth, a place to dwell for those who will dwell with Him for eternity. It's going to be a beautiful place and we're going to have a wonderful time together. Paradise is heaven. and So that's the garden of God. That's where Jesus is going to be for eternity. This week, as we conclude this series, John tells us in, the, in his gospel that Jesus was buried in a tomb, and that tomb also was located in a garden, although we don't have the name. He was buried in a garden. What a wonderful garden it was because of what happened there. We're going to call that the Garden of Victory. The crucifixion of Jesus on the cross was a real event. It's not something made up. The nails that were placed really right here through his wrists, it's not made up. The scars, I believe we'll see the scars of Jesus. He had a sword pierced through his side. There's going to be a scar there. He had nails through his feet. There's going to be scars there to show for it. Jesus went to the cross and was nailed to a cross. And it was a real event. The darkened sky, as George was singing about, it was real. It was real. There was a war with darkness raging 
The nails, the spear, the blood that he shed, his death, all of it was real. And I'm going to tell you, the empty tomb also was real. It was real. So today the message is, oh, victory in Jesus. Because of the empty tomb, we have victory over death. If you're a note taker, there's your first point. Because of the empty tomb, we have victory over death. On the morning of the third day after Jesus died, these women came to the tomb to give him a proper burial. They had the anointing spices and everything that they would anoint someone for his burial with. And they had intended on giving him that proper burial. But when they arrived, the tomb was empty and they became perplexed. They became troubled, the Bible says. In verse 5 in chapter 24 says that these two were angels. They were shining in shining garments. They're angels. They're standing there, and the angels ask the women this question. Why do you seek the living among the dead? I hope you have your Bible open, and I hope you'll go right there to that passage, and I hope you'll find this word, living. That word, living, is an interesting word. I know what you're thinking. Here he goes. He's going to get to the Greek and all that kind of stuff. It means little to me. But I think you ought to underline that word, and right next to it, don't write this yet, okay? Wait till I get to it. The literal translation of this word, I looked it up. You know what it means? Alive. (laughs) Living means to be alive. You know what else it means? Not dead. Not dead. You can look up that uh, comparable word in the Hebrew. You know what it means? Not dead. Alive. You can look that up in Aramaic. You know what that word living means? Surely you're catching on by now. It means alive. It means not dead. You want to look that word up in German? You know what that word means? It means alive. It means not dead. There's no other... You ought to underline that word living. Why do you seek the living among the dead? When they put Jesus in this tomb because he died that physical death, they went there expecting to find his body. Notice that the scripture tells us they observed how he was laid. But now they went supposedly going to find him in the same state, but he was gone. He was, he's living. He's not dead. Here's what we know about death. First of all, death is a decided fact. It's decided and appointed that each one of us is going to die. Now we hope not tomorrow. And some have lost loved ones recently and we sorrow for them just as they sorrow for others. But death is a decided fact. That's why most people are afraid to die. In the jungle book, Kipling's Jungle Book, there's a little boy named Mowgli. And Mowgli grew up in the jungle, didn't he? And he grew up playing with all the animals, being raised by some of the animals. And uh, Mowgli asked them, what's the most feared thing in all the jungle? He's asking all the animals this. And one of them says, oh, the most feared thing in the jungle is when you're on a narrow path and you, you meet up, where two animals meet up together, the And the one who steps aside loses. The one who refuses to step aside on the path, he's the most feared animal in the jungle. He said, well, what what animal would that be? Someone said, "Uh, an an elephant. Another one said, no, it's the lion. He doesn't step aside. But the wise old owl says this. He says, the most feared thing in the jungle, he said, the most feared thing is death. Death steps aside for no one. Unless we are here when Jesus returns and we go in the rapture, you and I are going to die. We're going to face that death. It's a decided fact. We will all face it, but we don't have to fear death. 
Because death is a defeated foe. It may be a decided fact, but it's defeated. And I love Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1 verse 17, John sees this vision of Christ. And he sees that the, the, the book, Revelation, the word apocalypse, literally means unveiling. And so when you read the book of Revelation, just think of Jesus unveiled, who he is. Think of the end times unveiled, the things that are going to take place. And so John has this unveiling of Jesus and this vision, and Jesus is speaking with him, and he's showing him, and he is... He's there with him and he says, When I saw him, meaning Jesus, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me. That's the arm and the hand of authority. He says, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And he says this, Jesus says this, And I have the keys to hell and death. The keys of Hades and death. You see, we're not in a losing battle. Like the song George sang, the battle has been won. The battle has been waged. Jesus fought the battle. And when he fought that battle with death, he took the sting out of death. That's why Paul says, he said, Oh death, where is your sting? Oh grave, where is your victory? The grave has no victory. Death has no victory. It has no sting. One day a father took his children to the park to play and a a bee began flying around them as they were seated there. And the bee was buzzing his kids and his kids got real fearful and got uh, afraid. And and then that bee landed on the side of his daughter's hair right here. And she was afraid of getting stung. So he just reached out and he grabbed that bee in his hand. The father did. He grabbed the bee in his hand. And that bee stung him really good. And then he let it go, but it kept flying around them, so they became afraid again. And so they're trying to slap it and get away. And he opened his hand, and he could see the stinger stuck in his palm. And so he showed his two kids. He said, look, the stinger is still in my hand. It's stuck in my hand. The only thing he can do to hurt you is to sting you with that stinger, but it's right here. You don't have to be afraid of that bee. In fact, that bee is going to die because he has no stinger left in him. And I want you to know that's the way it is with old Satan. He has no sting. He has no control over death. Death has no victory over us. We are not defeated. Jesus holds the keys to hell and death. Now, as I thought about that early this morning, I I thought about how it felt when I was a teenager to get the keys. Are you with me? Do you remember that time? When you finally got the car keys. In fact, parents are so reluctant, aren't they? They pull it back, and then they give you a lecture, don't they? Your first time out? Now wait a minute. Let me tell you something. This is where you're to go. You're to go where you say you're going to go. You're to be back when I've told you to be back. If you can't do it, you'll never get these again. Oh, I'll do it. Oh, I'll do it. Uh, Keys are powerful. Because when we have the keys, we have the authority. We feel like when we have those car keys, we have the power. And in a sense, we do. When we have the keys, we do have power. We are the ones in charge. We get to determine where we go. How long we'll stay? Who gets to go with us? When we're going to leave? All those things. It's powerful when you have the keys 
to a car. In the same way, Jesus holds the keys of hell and death. And because of the empty tomb, He gives us victory over death. He can determine where we go, and He has. He determines how long we get to stay. It's called eternity. And you might say, well, when's eternity over? Kids, listen to me. To yourself, you might be thinking, how long is eternity? I remember the movie Buzz Lightyear. What was his famous saying? To infinity and beyond means there's no end. You know, he's going to fly forever. But did you know this is real? When we go to heaven, we'll be with him for eternity. And eternity has no end. He has decided that because he has the keys. He decides where we go, when we go, and he decides that we get to stay forever. He gives us victory over death. Here's your second point this morning. Because of the empty tomb, not only do we have victory over death, our faith is not in vain. You know, a lot of people believe the believer's faith is in vain. A lot of people would mock us for sitting here this morning. They would laugh. They would scorn us for taking time out of our week to come and to worship. Well, you're off work. This is a holiday. It's an extended weekend. You could be somewhere with your family. We could all be at the lake three or four days at a time. Why, why would you let church get in the way? I would say only because this is the greatest day of the year for the believer. At the church in Corinth, many had been falsely taught that the resurrection of Christ did not happen. They had been falsely taught that Jesus did not rise and, and was not raised from the grave. And so Paul, in his letter, 1 Corinthians, to them, in chapter 15, he says this, that if Jesus is not risen, then we are the most pitiful people on the planet. If Jesus is not risen, what are we doing here? If Jesus is not risen, there's no everlasting life. If He could not raise from the grave, how then can He raise you from the grave unto eternal life? He said you're to be most pitied if that is not true. But He said, but Christ is risen. Amen? And you know we have these eyewitnesses, eyewitness testimonies throughout the Scripture about people who saw Him after He had risen from the grave. And I know we read over so many things in the Scripture and it just it loses its power when we just pass it over. We ought to take the time and read them and really think about it and, and get a bulldog grip on these things that are in the Scripture. Because you see, if one person saw Him alive only, just one, we would probably doubt that He was risen. If two were eyewitnesses or claimed to be eyewitnesses, but they were buddies... I'm just telling you, I probably wouldn't believe them. <laughs> they, would, they would say they're in cahoots with one another. They fabricated the same story. But there wasn't just one. There wasn't only two. More than 500 at one time witnessed the risen Lord. All at one time. Lee Strobel, in his book, The Case for Easter, says if all the eyewitnesses were brought in to stand in court and each one of them were to witness of, to, of what they saw, that they'd seen the risen Lord, and just give them 15 minutes apiece to witness, we'd have 129 hours to hear their testimonies. And those are just the ones that we know about. But John tells us about one who was not there when the others were there together. They were there praying like before, I assume. They were... Talking, they were probably discouraged. They were hiding. They were fearful of everything that was going to 
take place, knowing that they had taken the Lord, and Jesus appears to them. But one was not there among them who was part of them. His name was Thomas. And Thomas said, I won't believe unless I see it for myself. I won't believe unless I can touch the nail prints in his hands. So we call him what, everybody? Doubting Thomas. He wasn't there. Now, can I just give you an infomercial just quickly? You say, I'm the interim. And that means someday I'll probably be gone from here. And some of you might shout hallelujah. And some of you might say, oh, I wish you hadn't gone. I, you know, I don't know where you stand on all that, but I'm probably going to be gone one day. And so I can say this and get away with it. Some of you are no better off than doubting Thomas. And I'll tell you why. You're not under the teaching of the Word of God. You pop in from time to time and you feel like you've done your deed. And your faith is about this strong. Your faith is this strong. You doubt the things of God because you're not under the continual teaching of the Word. Oh, doubting Thomas didn't believe them. He didn't even believe their report. These were his friends. These were people he had served with. He knew the Lord and he doubted. He heard the word, the word of the Lord. He doubted. And I would just tell you, I just use that as an example to say, you ought to be here worshiping among the people of God every week. Why did Thomas not show up? Well, maybe he caught a playoff game on his new high-definition TV screen. I, I don't know. Maybe he stayed home. Maybe he stayed home to cut the grass and to get the grill ready for everybody else when they get home from church. You know people like that? I'll just stay here, honey. You take the kids. You go on to church. I'll have the chicken ready when you get home. No, you go. You go with them. Maybe he just decided to stay home and catch up on some R&R, rest and relaxation. I don't know. But he wasn't there. And he didn't believe. Thankfully, eight days later, Jesus came and he got to see for himself. But I would tell you this. You don't have to have a personal vision of Jesus to believe what has been written in his word. In fact, what did he tell Thomas? Blessed are those who having not seen still believe. In other words... You'd be better off, Thomas, having believed without having had to witness it for yourself. Jesus is alive. Let me ask you a question. Where's Confucius? He's in the grave. Where's Buddha? In the grave. Where's Muhammad? He's in the grave. Jesus rose again, and the Bible says he sits even now at the right hand of God the Father... In paradise, He is in heaven. He is in the garden of God. We can know this as well. Because of the empty tomb, the Spirit burns in our hearts. If you were to read on, we'd read a story about two guys who left Jerusalem after everything that had taken place, and they began walking to Emmaus. They were walking back home. And as these two are walking along, they're talking about discouraged. They're talking about everything that had taken place back in Jerusalem. How they had taken the Lord Jesus. How they had beat Him. How they had crucified Him on the cross. And they're talking and discussing all that. And all of a sudden, not knowing who it was, Jesus comes and is walking alongside of them. The risen Lord is walking with them. They're, he says, what are you talking about? And they begin to disclose to Him the nature of their conversation. And Jesus took that and ran with it, didn't He? And He begins talking with them 
about all the way back from the prophets, all the way through the Scriptures, of how He had to come fulfill Scripture. How He had to die. How He had to be buried. And how He had to be risen to life. And then He calls them foolish and slow at heart to believe in all that the prophets had spoken. He said, you're foolish. Why why are you slow at heart? You should believe all that the prophets said about Jesus. So he teaches them. Then he departs from them after spending a good deal of time even in the home with them and listen to what they said to each other in verse 32 after he leaves. Did our heart not burn within us while he talked with us and opened the scriptures to us? That word burn means to be kindled. It means to blaze. Were our hearts not set ablaze with this man who was here as he opened up the Scriptures to us? Was there not a fire that began to be kindled inside our hearts? I would give you three things they encountered that day which kindles a fire in our hearts even today. First of all, they encountered the Lord's presence. They were with Him. He was in their presence, in their midst, walking side by side with Him. And their hearts began to burn. And I would tell you that you and I encounter His presence through our salvation in Him and by the Spirit He has placed in our hearts. Our hearts can burn, can be kindled and set aflame for Him. Secondly, the fellowship that they had with Him, talking with Him. And you know, you and I have been given the privilege of prayer. And some of you are starting to testify about that a little bit. You say, during this 30 days of prayer, in seeking the Lord consistently on a daily basis, how your faith has been increased, your heart has burned within you. The third thing these two individuals on the road to Emmaus experienced with the Lord is they had God's Word expounded and explained to them so that they might understand better what happened to Jesus. And I would tell you again, the preaching and the teaching of the Word helps us to understand the truth about Jesus. Personal time reading in the Word helps you to understand. Meditating on God's Word helps you to understand as the Holy Spirit begins to illuminate things from the the Word of God to your life so that you can apply it to your heart and life. When that happens, a person begins to have victory in Jesus. See, we not only need His presence... And we not only need fellowship with Him, we need the victory in our lives that He provides and He makes possible. There's victory in Jesus, and that's the greatest message of Easter. That song, I'm sure you know it. You've got to sing it with me. I've told you I'm not the soloist around here. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me With His redeeming blood He loved me ere I knew Him And all my love is due Him He plunged me to victory Beneath the cleansing flood What's that flood? That flood's the blood of Jesus that flowed from His body that satisfied the Old Testament law. Because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness for sin. And Jesus became that sacrifice. He gives us victory. 